It's at the letters for Thursday, January 25th, 2024. Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson-Smith, our producers are Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. Thanks so much to them for their hard work and thanks to all of you for listening and being here with us as we begin season 10 of that the letters for the uh 2024 wow. blue jay season sorry sorry ben did i just rattle you a little bit there well slightly i, I think we can continue <laughs> um that's a lot of a lot of atl episodes a lot of uh yeah atl discussions so good to be starting up a, a new year and good to have everyone listening who's decided to join us today yeah good to be reminded of how old you are right then so oh, it's uh, it's humbling let's put it that way <laughs> Hey, still not a Hall of Fame vote. Once you get one of those, that's how you know you've been in the game for a long time. Yeah, just uh, just you gotta watch a little bit more baseball. You know, haven't haven't seen quite enough baseball, so um, no Hall of Fame vote here. Um, it will be, of course, a privilege if that day ever comes, but not at this point in time. So hey, if you've been with us for a decade, if you've been with us for a year, if you've been with us for only a minute, we thank you for listening. Very much appreciated. Uh, very excited to get the uh, 2024 season underway. Uh, I'm sure that you know Blue Jays fans are very excited, not only for the 24 season to get underway, but to see what the end of the 23-24 offseason looks like because uh, one presumes the Blue Jays are not finished uh, piecing together their roster ahead of 2024. If they are, uh, that would be an extremely disappointing outcome uh, for all involved, I feel. But then just as far as what's happened so far, big picture, 30,000 foot view, what are your general thoughts? How are you feeling about the Blue Jays offseason thus far? Well, I think it's been a tough one for fans. I think that's putting it pretty mildly, and I understand why. I think you look at the way the season ended, you look at the Shohei Otani sweepstakes, which we discussed, I guess it was just last month. It feels like so long ago now. But, um, you know, the Otani stuff was was really tough because they wanted him really badly. They pushed really hard. They didn't get him. So, you know, we all know how that unfolded and how that felt. And that was not an easy time for Blue Jays fans for a lot of reasons. Obviously, some, you know, extending to the media landscape and the way things were reported. We don't need to rehash all that. But it's been a really tough offseason, especially when... The follow-up to that wasn't that they went out and signed three players. They've signed a couple players, and um, there seems to be an agreement with another, which we'll get to. But uh, yeah, it's probably going to be an underwhelming offseason. Um, I, I think that at this point, they can still have a really good team next year. I know no one wants to hear that, and everyone probably wants me to say, just crap on the Jays right now, and that's fine. Um, but uh, and, and take nothing away. like It's been a really disappointing winter. It's been a disappointing year if you dial it back to the calendar year it's been one of the really difficult um stretches i think for blue jays fans in the last little while but here we are so i think that there's still moves to be made and improvements to be made and i do expect that there will be changes and upgrades to this roster yeah anything that follows whiffing on a pursuit of uh the greatest player to ever exist in the history of the game is gonna be underwhelming in comparison like anything that comes after that is going to pale and you can even layer in the uh you know discussions with the san diego padres uh for you know a trade for juan soto you could layer in uh you know 25 year old starting pitcher coming over from japan and yamamoto who you know the blue jays went to california to meet with and obviously did not end up uh coming to terms with uh, Otani and Yamamoto both 
joining the Dodgers. Juan Soto obviously ending up uh, in division with the Yankees. So anything that comes after that, even if it was like a Cody Bellinger deal for $200 million, is still going to pale in comparison to Shohei freaking Otani. So I think it's fair to say it's a disappointing offseason and an underwhelming offseason. I feel like the words that I would have chosen personally would be modest uh and middling (laughs) and maybe that's too generous uh you know that's that's fair criticism if you want to send that my way i just i don't think that it's done so it's almost like hard to look back on it and say it was this or it was that i will say like the blue jays took care of the low-hanging fruit you know, they did like the necessary short term stuff with Kiermaier and Kiner Falefa. They made a, uh, you know, a, a longer term upside bet on, uh, you know, Yariel Rodriguez out of Cuba, which we will talk about. I think they still need to add at least one bat, ideally two, one of them being like a power bat who you would feel comfortable um, hitting cleanup, preferably somebody who bats left-handed. And then in an ideal world, the other would be like a right-handed hitting outfielder who could just help decrease the amount of lefties that, uh, you know, Dolan Varsho and Kevin Kiermaier are going to face. So like, I think that there are still pathways to making this, you know, a B minus off season C plus, but it is very hard to see a pathway to this being even a B plus or a B, um, certainly not an A off season without, you know, shocking us and signing a Bellinger and a Chapman or pulling off like a completely unforeseen trade that uh, I don't think either of us really expected to happen. Yeah, no, exactly. I think you're right. I think that this is all pointing toward and tre- trending toward an off season that is just not one of the great off seasons in Blue Jays franchise history, which, you know, arguably I'm sure you know, people with the team would say, well, look, the goal isn't to win the offseason, it's to have a really good team. And they still think that they can have a really good team in 2024, which might be true. Now, of course, it's nice to have a good offseason as well. And it's not that, you know, obviously there's no guarantee you can be like the Padres and the Mets last year. You can have these huge offseasons, doesn't necessarily lead to great results on the field. But to your point earlier, like there are actual needs on this team. Um, that remain unfilled at this point. And I I think it's just broadly across the game, it's been a slow developing winter. So again, it doesn't mean they won't get something done. And I do expect them to add at least one bat to this this offense and to improve the offense in that way, uh, probably through free agency where there still are um, some pretty good hitters out there. But yeah, I I think there's no denying it. And I think when when you look big picture here and trace it back to 2016, you know, which is now seven, eight years ago. That's the last time they had a playoff win. It's just been a frustrating time for this team. And I think that at a certain point, it starts to wear on a fan base and really understandably so. Yeah, you you look at the way that things have played out over the last several seasons with like repeated failures in the playoffs and uh, missing the playoffs by one game. Um, The way that the 2023 season ended certainly left like a really bitter taste uh, in the mouths of a lot of fans. And that certainly colors the way that you look at the offseason as well. Like I I, the longer I kind of do this, the you know, the more I kind of see these patterns where. Um, I think people are just generally like far too down on teams that are coming off of underwhelming seasons and also far too high on teams that are coming off of like expectation exceeding ones. So like, yeah. I feel like people way overrate the Orioles 
going into 2024. Like I, I, yeah, I I don't think they're going to be the, they're going to be as successful in 24 as they were in 23. Um, Interesting. I I see the inverse with the Yankees too, Ben. Like I think the Yankees coming off of a pretty underwhelming year in 2023, I think people will rate them somewhat poorly going into 24 because look, they projected really well in 23 and things didn't, we all saw how that played out. I bet you the Yankees are going to be better in 24 than they were in 23. So, you know, I look at the Blue Jays performing below expectations, um, below their projections in 23. I, I bet you they're likely to be a bit better in 24, just thanks to the power of regression. Some of that's going to depend on what else they do this offseason. We both just said they need to add two bats, at least one very impactful one. Um, but, you know, I do think that, like, what we have seen in recent history and just, you know, obviously what happened early in this offseason is really just coloring a lot of the perspectives on how the Blue Jays uh, you know, are situated going into 24. Yeah, I, the Jays are definitely poised to have a lot of bounce backs from players like Kirk. I mean, Varsha was the easy one, right? 85 OPS plus, I, I think. If, if not, it was very close to that. He's clearly a better hitter than that. Great defender. Gotta love that. O'Hearn sends one to center. And back goes Varsho to make the catch. Another good play by Varsho. Doesn't matter if he's in left or center, Joe. He's making the plays. You know, of course, Vladdy, Kirk, Springer. There's room for improvement there. There's also room for, hey, maybe Jose Barrios and Kikuchi don't have quite the same seasons that they had. Maybe, maybe Kevin Kiermeyer offensively doesn't have quite the same season that he had in 2023. So could be some regression. I still think the Jays are a good team and poised to improve. And that's what the statistical models would tell us if you look at the projections via fan graphs and other places. Um, just real quick on the Orioles. I still think the Orioles are like a really, really good team. I agree with you on the Yankees, but I still think the Orioles, just when you look at the depth of their offense and like they can withstand an injury, even to a top player, I think a lot better than most teams because they have so much position player depth where like if Jordan Westberg has to have 550 plate appearances, that's totally fine. Or if Jackson Holiday comes up, he might hit 310 or 320 in a four-month sample for this team. Or maybe he makes the team out of opening day and is one of the best hitters in baseball. So I just think offensively, they have so much depth that I think that they're going to be one of the best teams in the league for that reason. I also think that Dean Kramer is going to have to make like 32 starts and Tyler Wells is going to have to make a whole bunch of starts for them. And, you know, I think there's a lot of questions in their bullpen. I think there's a lot of questions about whether they can do as well in one run games and whether they can replicate the success that they had with runners in scoring position and in high leverage spots year over year. I would argue that those things likely are not replicable but your point is taken about uh the offense it is very deep very young very exciting this is something that they have been building for some time and they still have a very strong uh farm system coming behind it uh on the position player side and they should sign blake snell or montgomery um (laughs) they should sign anyone ben yeah anyone other than just craig kimbrell they should sign a starting pitcher today yesterday Snell is the perfect one for them. I, if if they signed Snell, that would actually be really scary for the Jays. But we'll see. Uh, you mentioned Kevin Kiermeyer, and uh, you know, let's just touch very quickly on like what the Blue Jays have actually done to this point before we get any further into uh, you know what might be coming next. Uh, you know, this is kind of the first move of their offseason, bringing back 
Kevin Kiermeyer, and obviously you know what you're getting. Uh, Mount Rushmore center field defender, um, very familiar with the team, the staff environment. Obviously, um, not somebody who's going to carry your offense, but not somebody who is likely to kill it either. I think he is fine as your number nine hitter, providing excellent defense in center field. Incredible source of energy throughout the uh, the drudgery and grind of a regular season. That's one of the things that really impressed me about Kevin Kiermaier being around him in 2023 was that like he was the same guy on opening day as he was in the middle of July, as he was uh, late in September, as he was towards the end of spring training. Like every day, just very consistent with the energy that he brought. And that is a, uh, a really hard thing, I think, to do over a 162-game, six-month grind um but you know probably somewhat surprising honestly on my end i assume yours as well that the blue jays brought back kevin kiermeyer i wasn't necessarily seeing this one coming when the offseason began yeah i i think that you know because there were some bigger name players out there and cody bellinger obviously on that list then that's not where the discussion began um even kevin kiermeyer acknowledged when he spoke to us that he was a little surprised by the way his free agency unfolded and he thought going into the winter that he actually would have had more interest and better offers and just didn't end up unfolding that way for Kiermaier. He seemed at the same time as he was saying that really excited to come back to Toronto, hopeful that he can build on the season he had here in 2023. So it was clearly a really good fit for him and for the Jays. Um, that's why everyone agreed to, to re-up and, and have it happen again. Um, I, I think moving forward with Kiermaier in the outfield, you're just so happy defensively with what he's able to do. And it's so rare, A, to be that good in the first place, B, to sustain that level of elite defense in a very real way into his 30s, the way he did last year. And so when he's on the field, and of course he's had some issues, although he was quite healthy last year, when he's on the field, he's as good as it gets. Like He is still so good at going out there and making plays, diving, coming in the ball, going into the gaps, back at the wall, just an incredible defensive player. So I think that's what you're getting, plus a great base runner who makes really good decisions when it comes to stretching for that extra base, whether he's going first to third or maybe stretching his own single into a double. Not necessarily an elite hitter, and I think his offense might take a step back, but overall, this is a really good player. And around his the first pitch to left center. Long run, Kiermaier back, jumps. He's got it. Yeah, it's not a coincidence that the Blue Jays pitching staff was as good as it was in uh, 2023 with the outfield defense that was playing behind it. Uh, and Kiermaier, a huge part of that. Dalton Varsho, obviously, also a big part of that. And then George Springer's defense plays up uh, you know, in, in right field and just having his uh, time in the field kind of, you know, the, the toll on his body managed uh, a bit better as he gets towards his, his mid-30s. And I think that like with, with Kiermaier, it's not just like the highlight real plays although there are those i think it was opening day that he took one and he brought one back from over the wall and we saw plenty of plays like that but i think it's also just how often that um balls in the gap get cut off before they get to the wall or just how consistently throws back to the infield are accurate and to the right man um the way that like singles are not stretched into doubles singles stay singles and doubles don't become triples like doubles 
stay doubles. I think all that stuff just accumulates over the course of a season and like really helps your pitching staff in ways that maybe we don't, uh, you know, that aren't necessarily as apparent as, uh, you know, going up over the wall to bring back a home run. I think that um, the Blue Jays also just managed his playing time very effectively in 23, gave him those purposeful days off to keep him healthy. They shielded him from lefties is probably part of the reason why he overperformed what you would project from him offensively in 23. I think you're right to expect a step back. I don't think we should expect another like 104, 105 WRC plus year. But if you're getting Kevin Kiermeyer defense, if you're keeping him healthy and, and off of the IL um, and you're getting like a 92, 93 WRC plus, I think you're pretty fine with that out of the nine spot in your lineup. Oh, for sure. And I, I think, too, like having him on this roster just shifts things where not only does it put Varsho in left field, where great, okay, now they have these two really good defenders, but it also means that when you're building your bench, you don't have to have a defense first center fielder. Whereas if you didn't sign Kevin Kiermeyer, let's say you sign um, Jock Peterson, he's your full-time left fielder, which still could happen. But let's say you sign a bit of a clunker, you put that guy in left field then on your bench, you have to have someone else who can play center in case you want to take Dalton Varsho out of the game, in case he's injured, he's taking a day off, whatever. But now you have two center fielders. That allows you to go a little bit more offensive on your bench. Yeah, and another um, player who helps the Blue Jays uh, be able to target like DH-only types in free agency and just helps them with some of the maneuverability of their roster and their deployment, their flexibility, their versatility is Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, who is the second player who the Blue Jays signed uh, this year, the second player that we should talk about. Um, a little surprising to see him get two years and $15 million. I don't know if that's the value I would have seen him getting coming into the offseason, but it sounds like he had a, a fairly robust market. Uh, you know, sounds like he had everyday opportunities elsewhere. Uh, you know, the Dodgers and and the Brewers, Marlins, Yankees were all involved to some degree there. So I think that explains why it took two years and 15 million to sign him. But his versatility is obviously an asset and the ability to play a plus third base and then also cover shortstop if Bo Bichette gets hurt and run out to the outfield if needed to play second base. That does allow John Schneider more flexibility just in filling out his lineup card and optimizing matchups and mixing and matching late in games, defensive replacements, trying to get guys into good pinch hit opportunities and then it also helps the front office and how they fill out this roster because now you've got so many different positions covered you can go after that true like dh only type in uh like a jd martinez mold for sure and I, you know i think when you're looking at ikf in the context of like these other these loftier goals right whether it's shohei otani or anyone else then yeah, like of course it's going to be pretty underwhelming. And I again, it makes so much sense. If you're looking at IKF just in isolation, then of course this is a player who makes any team's bench better. Every team in baseball can use a player like IKF, and the Blue Jays are no exception to that. And the reasons for that are pretty widespread. I mean, he can do a lot of different things for you, whether it's being pretty good on the bases, whether it's not striking out that much, putting the bat on the ball pretty often. I think the Jays value the versatility specifically probably plus defense at third probably plus defense at second can handle shortstop if needed can handle the out you know i don't think they necessarily view him as a guy who's likely to play a ton of outfield but he could handle it if needed and so 
you end up just improving your overall roster. And the idea of, you know, again, this doesn't address their biggest needs. Uh, it doesn't solve things. It doesn't make them into an instant, you know, lock for the top of the American League East. Far from it. It's a role player, but you need good role players on good teams. And, you know, to have a take where it's like IKF is like a bad signing. I just, I honestly <laughs> don't get that because he's like, he is a good player and he's not a great player, but he's at least a good, useful player to raise the floor of the roster. The drive to right center field from Connor Falafa. That's pretty deep. Myers is back. I think it depends on how the rest of the offseason plays out and just what Blue Jays lineups look like in 2024. Because if like if Isaiah Kiner Falefa is your everyday third baseman or second baseman and he's getting like over 600 plate appearances and hitting fifth regularly, I don't know if that's great. But if he's bouncing around to a bunch of different positions, as you said, he's kind of you know, late game defensive replacement. He's getting like 450 plate appearances, hitting seventh or eighth in your lineup regularly. I think you're sweet. Like, I think if yeah. he's more of in the Whit Merrifield role rather than the Matt Chapman role, I think that's great. If he's it's, it's in a- the Matt Chapman role, well, now we might have an issue. Yeah, because, you know, yeah, if he's hitting fifth, that's not good. He's not a great <laughs> offensive player. I mean, like, you can look at the OPS plus every year. He's never even been an average offensive player. Again, that's okay. You're you're going to have players on a 26-man roster. You're going to have players who are below average hitters. Like, that's that's the nature of, uh, of building a, a roster. And IKF is better than Ernie Clement. You know, he's you have a lot more confidence that you are going to be able to get a usable major league player in IKF over Ernie Clement, who's probably the guy that he bumped off. So, of course, again, there are bigger needs. There are bigger questions. This team needs to aspire to much more um, than it has been and to much greater heights than they've reached. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think it's Isaiah kiner Falefa's fault. Or, I, you know, I think that he's like, he's part of a solution to a, to a modest scale problem. Um, he's not going to solve everything, but a step in the right direction. Yeah, you like that he makes a ton of contact and you like that he doesn't strike out much, but there just is zero pop in that bat. Um, not impressive exit velocities or barrels or hard contacts on these metrics that w- that we look at. Uh, he's got an 81-weighted runs created plus since he entered the league in 2018. So yeah, that he's really- an upgrade over Ernie Clement, right? Like yeah. that's, that's what they had on their roster before. And same with, you know, if as they're looking, which we'll get to, I'm not trying to jump ahead here, but, you know, once it comes time to sign a DH, potentially, you're upgrading over Spencer Horwitz, who also has options, so you can keep him in the organization anyway. But it's not, it's not, oh, he's not Carlos Delgado, or, oh, my God, he's not, you know, he's not Marcus Semyon. It's, what do you have on the roster, and what can you do to upgrade the current version of the Blue Jays? Yeah, he's he's great as as a role player, um, but like yeah, if he's one of your like top three or four in plate appearances and no, somebody no, no, who's no. regularly hitting in the middle of your lineup, yeah. you got problems. That's bad. Uh, so those are the two like confirmed signings. Uh, the third um, signing, which is just reported to this point, Blue Jays haven't confirmed it yet, but we have no reason to believe that we will not get across 
the finish line uh, is Yariel Rodriguez, starter slash reliever out of Cuba, most recently pitched uh, over in NPB in Japan for the Chinuchi Dragons. Um, he was like a, a high leverage late inning reliever in Japan. Um, and then the last time we saw him competitively, he was working as a starter for Cuba uh, at the 2023 World Baseball Classic uh, and then just sat out the 2023 season. Um, ultimately was released from his NPB deal, became an international free agent, and it appears now that the Blue Jays uh, are close to signing him for uh, a four-year, $32 million deal. Uh, this is the most interesting of the maneuvers the Blue Jays have made so far this offseason to me, Ben, because it'll look one way in the short term in 2024, and I think it'll look another way in the long term. This is uh, an upside bet. This is um, a bet with a ton of volatility. This is something that can break a number of different ways. Um, it's going to be a bit of a project, I think, for the Blue Jays, certainly this year and maybe over the, the coming years. But if Blue Jays trust their pitching development and their talent recognition and their ability to help players get better and you know maximize their abilities and their tools um i think it's going to be really interesting to see just how the blue jays can help rodriguez um be more consistently in the box develop a third pitch or like a legitimate third pitch that you can throw regularly to lefties get stretched out as a starter um hold his stuff inning to inning um, it's just going to be really interesting to to watch this kind of developmental story play out at a time when the Blue Jays are also likely to be relying on him uh, in some pretty important innings at the big league level. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one. I think um, he's got a big arm, clearly a lot of velocity there, and seems to you know enjoy pitching with that with that velocity and really challenging hitters, which is a great starting point. As far as the question marks, man, there are a lot of question marks here, right? And they, you don't even have to look hard for to, to find them. I mean, I guess first and foremost, there's the visa situation, which, you know, if he was from Tennessee or like Vermont or, you know, Mississauga, then I think this deal would be done. We would have had an announcement and a physical. My read is from the outside looking in that, you know, Cuban player has been in Japan, uh, living in the Dominican now, needs work visas for Canada and the U.S. There's just a lot of factors. It's going to take, it is taking time, clearly weeks, to get this sorted. So that's like the first wrinkle. And then you get to the fact that he didn't actually pitch in a league last year. He pitched in the WBC, but didn't pitch in a league. And before that, he was a reliever. So if he's coming here and he's going to get the chance to start, which we think he will, then you're talking about a guy that's going to have to stretch out. And what are the what kind of durability can he offer what kind of, like you said, the pitch mix, you know, mechanically, how consistent is he going to be? These are massive questions that literally no one knows the answer to. And so the only way you can start to answer them is just put them on a mound and find out. But you really don't know which direction this thing's going to go. And I think that the acquisition cost kind of tells you something, right? You know, four years, $32 million. So that's a, an $8 million AAV. Uh, the Blue Jays are paying him like a seventh or eighth inning guy. Like they're they're paying him like a setup reliever. So like that indicates that, you know, to me at least that the Blue Jays believe that like at minimum they are getting a leverage reliever because I, you know, the Blue Jays aren't in the business of giving out contracts that they don't believe that they'll reap value on. So, you know, if they can develop him into a starter, you know, five and dive guy, even just a one trip through guy, even just like a kind of like length leverage reliever, well, now you have surplus value. 
right now you're like getting like great production on eight million dollars a season but they aren't even paying him like a fifth starter right like they're not paying him kyle gibson money or ross stripling money uh they're paying him seventh eighth inning guy money so like uh, that to me like speaks to just the potential here for the blue jays to really like get a lot out of this deal and i think it also just kind of indicates to me that they have pretty strong conviction that his stuff like his fastball that has been up to the upper 90s in relief his super high spin slider that's kind of like mid 80s and um you know plays really well off of like the fastball because of just like the vertical approach angle and the way that his pitches sort of interplay off of each other that they believe that that repertoire will be effective in leverage relief at least at the big league level um and they're going to see if they can get some more out of it going forward yeah it's interesting because on the aav level it's not that much but then he does get some term and you know the reported number is 32 million over four years which there's no reason to disbelieve um so you know at that point that is that's more than than stripling got it's not quite what steven matt's got you know for, as a total it's it's not quite what jordan hicks got it's more than nick martinez got it's pretty comparable to what robert stevenson got as like a setup reliever with the angels so you know, it's into the territory where there's some reflection with this commitment that there's, you know, there's a real investment here. It's not just a flyer. Like, it's somewhere between the established, you know, obviously, frontline starting money is way more than this. Um, but it's between that and then just taking a flyer where there is some, like, actual investment here. Well, I was comparing the AAV, right? So, like, yeah. Stripling, his AAV was, like, what, 12 and a half? You know, you look at other kind of fifth starter types like Manaya would have been in the 12 to 13 range, you know, Kenta Maeda, right? Like, yeah, you yep. there is some term here, but, you know, I think that the other factor here uh, is the age. Like, you're not signing a guy who's, you know, early to mid-30s as you typically would be in free agency. You're turning a guy who hasn't yet turned 27. Um, yep. You're signing a guy who's going to be 27 in March, you know? Like, this contract, like, the term... This you're not covering decline, or you wouldn't think you are. You should be covering his prime and his best years as a pitcher. Uh, and you're getting a guy who, by the way, just rested his arm for an entire year. So obviously, there's yeah. going to be a bit of a reacclimation to a competitive environment and to like being on a mound in a game that matters. But his arm should be feeling pretty fresh, and you don't see too many pitchers with leverage reliever stuff. Uh, on the free agent market at 26 years old who you're going to sign for an $8 million AAV. Yeah, totally. And I think like, you know, maybe his floor is Jimmy Garcia, right? He's like a seventh or in a good year, eighth inning guy. And um, he's a trusted arm in your bullpen with big velo. And maybe his ceiling is like, I wouldn't expect it this year. Like this is probably too good for this year, but like maybe Seth Lugo, like down the line, um, kind of a swing guy who, ends up stepping into a starting role over time. Like, again, I'm not saying don't expect Seth Lugo right out of the gate, but I think that, um, you know, that could be the third year ceiling in, in 26 where you're looking at a guy and it's like, hey, we thought he was a swing guy. He's actually become like a really good pitcher um, who can who can contribute in the rotation. And the other thing is, I, I think especially as you start getting more toward you know, shared innings and getting away from the, you know, traditional 200 inning starting pitcher, maybe this guy gives you three, four, five innings. Like maybe that's what it becomes. And he's, he's giving you four or five innings, five or 10 times this year in a really good outcome or, or you know, in, in a reasonably good outcome. 
then that's that's helping you. I mean, they're not going to be as healthy this year as they were last year. So I think there's probably a lot of questions to answer out of the gate. Wouldn't expect that he's necessarily, you know, that day one opening day starter, um, but someone who over time could shift into more of that role. Yeah, he doesn't have to fall into like this binary, you know, these one of two poles. Either he's a five inning starter or a one inning reliever. Like he could be something in between. Yeah. Um, he can be a two trips through starter, you know, two trips through 18 batters and he's done, or a one trip through reliever. I just think that there's like a lot of different ways that this can play out in the years ahead like 2024 is going to be a bit of a developmental year i think and he's going to be a little bit of a project and the blue jays are going to try to show him some things and obviously work with him i'm sure in the lab in dunedin and you know as i said try to like develop a legitimate third weapon that he can use against lefties to go with his fastball and slider so is that his change up like is that his splitter i don't know they're going to try to do some robbie ray things with him and you say kikuchi things with him and maybe 2024 just kind of looks like a traditional year or a transitional year as a swingman he's got some long relief maybe he makes a handful of starts a few leverage opportunities maybe he opens a game or two and then in 2025 when you say kikuchi's a free agent now yep. you see if he can build on that. And now you see if he can transition to more of a regular starter in your rotation. I think the other benefit for 2024 as well is that Rodriguez's experience in Japan as a high leverage reliever, his routines in that role being so well established means he could easily transition into that role for the Blue Jays and pitch in high leverage relief in the postseason. Even if that's not the role he'd been fulfilling throughout the regular season. Like, remember, you know, all these conversations that we have come late September of like, could you say Kikuchi transition to the bullpen? Could Hunjin Ryu come How'd out that of the go? bullpen? Exactly. Right. <laughs> like, guys who haven't done that, you know, before, guys who don't have those routines established, who would be thrown off by having to fill these roles come October. This is a guy who's been there, done that, has the routines could really be uh, a benefit to the Blue Jays late in the season, regardless of what role or roles he is fulfilling throughout 2024. I think we can infer from the commitment here that they view him as an arm that would be on a postseason roster and that would probably be pitching some of the highest leverage outs of their season. You're not doing a four-year commitment if you if you think this guy is Shun Yamaguchi 2.0. Like they think that there is, and of course we'll we'll hear from them more once it becomes official. But we can infer from this that they think he is an arm capable of getting out the best hitters um, in really big spots, whatever that role is. And again, it'll come down to command. Um, whether he's able to keep the ball over the plate often enough, that will determine whether he starts and how soon. Um, but in the meantime, even if he doesn't have the command, he can still be, a, I mean, Jordan Hicks last year did not have a lot of command um, <laughs> when he was with the Jays. He ends up getting $40 million. We'll see how that goes as a starting pitcher. You know, that's a whole other story. But I think that, you know, with, with Rodriguez, this is someone whose stuff would be good enough that even if he's not pinpoint, he can still be effective late in games. And I think that you just cannot count on using only six starters again. Yeah. Um, I guess I like technically the Blue Jays used eight, right? Because the Trevor Richards, um, Wes Parsons, open, right? Yeah, Wes Parsons got to start, but sure essentially did. they use six starters in 2023. You can't count on that again. So I think that you want to add to just your your depth um, in your rotation, your options for if you need somebody to fill a rotation spot for three weeks beyond your. You're Alec Manoa and Bowden Francis and Mitch White. I mean, just to have Rodriguez as an option 
there, um, I, I think that's helpful. I don't think that you want to bring camp again in a situation where like Drew Hutchison is your number six or Zach Thompson is your number six. I want, I think you want to enter this season, especially considering how things went in 2023, uh, with some better depth than your starting options. Wow. Drew Hutchison just, uh, last year, right? <laughs> 12 months ago, 11 months ago, Drew Hutchison was legit number six on the depth chart. Good thing they didn't need to go down that that list too far. No, no, they did not. Uh, when we come back, we will go down the list pretty far on uh, what the Blue Jays still need to accomplish in the time between now and spring training and, and opening days. They wrap up their offseason uh, and just look ahead to uh, what is to come and what we can expect from Blue Jays in 2024. All that and so much more when we continue on At The Letters. Listen to At The Letters ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It continues on At The Letters, Arden Swelling and Ben Nicholson-Smith. Uh, literal breaking news as we're recording the podcast here. It seems like Jock Peterson is uh, nearing an agreement with the Arizona Diamondbacks. So another DH uh, option off the board. Ben and I are going to talk about how the, the Blue Jays could uh, you know look to that market uh, and the remaining options and the upsides and downsides therein uh, later on the pods. Stay tuned for that. But first, we'd be remiss if we didn't cover off one more piece of news that did come out, you know, that has happened or is happening and will happen this offseason. And uh, that is the uh, salary arbitration uh, case of one Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Blue Jays settled with all of their arbitration eligible players, save for Vlad. Uh, Vlad filed for 199 million dollars blue jays filed for 18.05 uh vlad is coming off of a year where he made 14.5 and uh, blue jays fans are certainly familiar with uh sort of the underwhelming offensive performance that uh that vlad had in 2023 although still well above league average uh in pretty much all offensive categories but certainly short of his potential as a young player in this game um ben what do you kind of make of the blue jays going to arbitration they're a file and trial club so it would take a multi-year agreement for the blue jays to avoid going to arbitration with vlad what do you think about the possibility of them going to a hearing with one of the uh, top young talents on their team? You know, I, when it comes to arbitration, I tend to have a lot of thoughts. And um, I don't know what that says about me as a baseball fan, but I do have a lot of thoughts about this arbitration case. And, and of course, like it's Vlad Guerrero Jr., right? Like this is, if this was an arbitration case for Nate Pearson, I don't think we'd be talking about it, but it's Vlad Guerrero Jr. This guy is now in his ninth year in this organization. He signed in 2015. This is a really, really big part of this franchise in the present day, and at least for the next two years. So I think it's a big deal. Um, anything to do with Vlad Jr. and is and is definitely worthy of a discussion. I think at the same time, there's, there's maybe a tendency amongst some folks, maybe they're fans, maybe they're in the media, whatever, they, even in the industry sometimes. So look at this. And to think, oh my goodness, like this is acrimonious, this is bad, like this is a sign that things are going downhill, which like maybe it will. Like who knows what's going to happen in that hearing room. It might get ugly. Like I don't know, it hasn't happened yet. There's Anything is on the table. But I think if you look at these things, it is part of the industry. 
it is part of a broader um, off-field you know, compensation structure that is collectively bargained. It is part of a relationship that's unfolding between Vlad Jr. and the Blue Jays on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, that has been unfolding for nine years now. He knows the Jays. The Jays know him. You know, you're not going to make or break everything in that relationship in one arbitration hearing room, in my opinion. But that being said, look, it's it's not a good thing. Like nothing about this is good that they're going to arbitration. It would be better if they had um, reached an agreement on a one-year deal and just been able to move forward. So I'm not presenting this as a good thing, but I don't think it's I don't think it's catastrophic. I think it's part of the business of the sport, and this is what's happening now. If you like torpedo your relationship with a player who you've had a relationship with for that long in one arbitration hearing, uh, somebody needs to be fired. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who was in that room? Uh, yeah. Who said something so damaging and insulting that like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is now just like completely aggrieved? Uh, like, how did you get to a point where something like that was said? It just like it just would not happen with like professionals at the highest level. Like, yes, as a player, if you go to your hearing, which you don't have to, but like some players choose to, it will be um, uncomfortable, certainly, to like hear like the case made, you know, against the salary that you were filing for. Um, you know, to hear the the case made, and this is all, by the way, via comparisons to prior players who have gone through the process or prior players who have signed contracts in their arbitration eligible years um you know to hear that to hear that case made especially if you disagree with it but i it's just like i think that's kind of the mistake that people make like is that they think that the blue jays are going to go in there and say this guy sucks he's terrible he doesn't work hard he doesn't want it like that's just not what happens like the blue jays would never say something in that hearing that could be just so damaging to the relationship that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. would decide, like, right then and there, I am done with the Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. Like, it would take it would take something really catastrophic. And so for that reason, the Blue Jays need to handle this with care. They need to choose who's going to be in that room carefully. Um, a lot of the time, uh, teams will hire outside help, outside consulting help on this sort of thing. If they were to do that, they would want to make sure that that is, you know, very carefully vetted. Whoever it is that's representing the voice of the Toronto Blue Jays there has to be really tactful in the way that they're talking about such an important player. And so I, I have every reason to believe that that will happen. And there's some cases like, look, we both remember Marcus Stroman going to arbitration with the Blue Jays. And there's some cases where players will hold grudges. And to some extent, that is a product of who the player is as a person. And I think with Marcus Stroman, who's obviously a talented pitcher, and by the way, is going to be super interesting on the Yankees, and I think he'll probably mm-hmm. shove against, <laughs> I honestly, like I'm calling this right now, this feels like an ATL throwback right now, talking about Marcus Stroman, but um, I'm calling it right now, he is going to shove against the Blue Jays at least a couple times this year. Like he is going, he's going to love, you know Marcus Stroman well, Arden, like can't you just see him loving to pitch against the Blue Jays? Can't you just see him throwing a Maddox against the Blue Jays with like 16 ground ball outs? Exactly. Exactly. And if, you know, um, I I do think that that's going to happen. And and Strowman is a different dude. And I think part of the way that he generates his passion and energy for the game is honestly, it kind of is through grudges sometimes. Or it's like holding on to stuff that probably some people would just let go of and not let it weigh them down. But for whatever reason... 
the way Marcus Stroman seems to be wired is he will take that as ammunition and it will fuel him and he'll hold on to that stuff for years. And and look, everyone's different. That works for him. Obviously, he's one of the most successful pitchers in the world. But for Vlad Jr., as a dude, and look, he's a human being too. So his feelings could be hurt in this. And maybe the fact that he's even having to go to arbitration might hurt his feelings with, with this. Um, and, and that's a possibility that the Jays have to manage carefully here because Vlad Jr.'s how he feels and, and how he operates, that really matters. Um, but I just don't think he's the kind of guy to hold grudges. Like it sucks now and it probably will suck for another month uh, as this unfolds. But are you telling me that on August the 15th when the Blue Jays are facing Marcus Stroman and the Yankees, if anyone's thinking about the arbitration that day, it's Stro. And, and it's not, it's not fly. <laughs> Yeah, like if it if it ever got to a point where it was like so toxic after this hearing, like it would just be a failure in the Blue Jays for the way, you know, for how tactful they were, as you said, and, you know, how, uh, I don't know, diplomatic or sensitive they were in the way that they presented their case. I think it would also be a failure of Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s representatives to not have prepared him for what he was in store for, what this process is, what it means, how many extremely talented players like have been through this process um prior like you know kyle tucker comes to mind last year he went yep. to arbitration Max when, Reed. yeah remember when we were thinking about how like tucker and Bo bichette's arbitration cases were going to be so interesting i think they were on the same day and they were like such similar cases and filing numbers like i remember you know looking forward to that and then obviously uh you know Bo bichette uh signed the extension the multi-year deal that would uh you know that that's superseded the Blue Jays ever going to a, a case with him but like yeah it, it like it's it's up to Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s representatives to like prepare him for what this means and just how this is part of the business and to you know let him tell him like don't take anything too personally just like understand the process like this is a collectively bargained thing that is here and like plenty of people in the game think the arbitration is archaic and flawed and like shouldn't be part of it but um like it's kind of like democracy like it's not a great system but it's the best one we've got uh like arbitration <laughs> that's is like, that's our spin-off podcast Arden on politics <laughs> it look like arbitration it's not great but it's kind of the best solution i've heard uh aside from like you know a formula that you could come up with that would award compensation in those years but i mean how are you going to get both the PA and the league and teams and players to sit down and agree on that formula, that seems unrealistic to me. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And yeah, so when you zoom out that far, it's part of the process and probably not going anywhere. It's been around for 50 years. Um, Vlad Jr. knows that, uh, having, you know, obviously grown up in the game. Um, I never, I haven't looked up to see if his dad ever went to arbitration, but it's it's, it's a part of the game. Bobachet knows that. Vlad Jr. knows that. It's again, it's not a good thing. I also think Vlad's going to win. I think just looking at some of the comps, I haven't done a super deep dive, but whether it's Pete Alonso or even Juan Soto, Soto is probably a tier above. Um, but um, start looking at the comps, I, I do think Vlad is going to win his case. And so um, that would impact the mood as well. But you got to be careful with it. Um, and and at the same time, it, it prompts a bigger question of, you know, what's happening here with both Vladdy and with Bo Bichette when it comes to their futures with the team. And at this point, like, you know, as you said, Bo is, is locked in through his arbitration years, which means through next year, through 2025. Um, Vlad Jr. at this point going year to year. 
I'm not holding my breath on an extension for either one of those guys, especially, you know, before opening day, which would be the traditional window for getting some of this stuff done. I expect that Guerrero Jr. goes year to year. Um, next year, when when his time comes up, he'll be six, seven months away from hitting free agency. Historically speaking, that's a tough time to get a deal done. So at this point, if I had to guess, you know, the tea leaves are pointing toward both these guys probably hitting free agency um, just based on the way things look right now. Well, you know, as was the case with uh, Bo when he went through this process, like at that time, any extension with Bo was either going to be like the three year structure, which they ended up agreeing on. Or like a 13-year structure. Yeah. Like there's no there's no in-between here when you're talking about like a superstar shortstop generational talent, somebody who's led the AL and hits multiple years, somebody who can point to, you know, comps of like shortstops that have signed in very recent years for well north of 250, $300 million. Um, like there was there wasn't like a seven-year structure. It was either gonna be three or thirteen. So with Vlad, it's similar, right? I could see a two-year agreement. That's a multi-year deal. The Blue Jays could sign that. You know, they're not going to sign a one-year deal with them. They're filing trial, but could sign a two-year extension to avoid the arbitration thing just to cover off those final two years. They did that with Matt Chapman. Um, you know, you could do that with Vladimir Guerrero Jr., but it's but it's either two years, Ben, or it's like 12. There's not yeah. like a four or five year extension here when Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is this close to free agency and when he's going to be so young and one assumes productive when he hits free agency. Penny with a fly ball to left. It's carrying and it is gone. He has homered for the third consecutive game. Oh, absolutely. And if you're the Jays, of course you would do a five-year deal. I mean, that'd be great from the team standpoint. I, you know, I don't think Vlad Jr. is going to do that. If he does, then his agents have done him a, have not done him any any favors. Um, yeah, I, yeah. So it would be, as you said, two or, or much longer. And I actually don't even think two happens because if you're the Blue Jays, why lock in that second year right now? Don't you want Vlad Jr. to have to go out there and prove it and actually say, look, you want to get a five million dollar raise? Like you want to go. Let's say, you know, to use easy numbers here, let's say you want to go 2025 for 2024 and 2025. You want 45 over two. Well, what's the incentive on the Blue Jays part to lock in that 25 right now? I mean, I guess in theory, it could save you a million if Flatty has another MVP year. Then he's looking at a $6 million raise. So maybe you can save yourself 1 million. But what if he, you know, if, if he ends up missing time, then you end up costing yourself. So I don't even really see the case for doing a two-year deal. I think that's fair. I think that, yeah, the, the incentive for the Blue Jays there is quite clear. And then the ascent incentive for Vlad then would be to go year to year and try to get that extra million, right? Or yeah. try to get that extra two, you know, try to go out and have that like 150 WRC plus year and be an MVP finalist again. And yeah, get a big raise in arbitration because he knows, you know, even if he loses this case as you expect him to, he would still have a platform of like 18 million. So yeah, well, I think he's like, going to win. I, uh, maybe oh, I'm sorry. You said he's yeah. going to win. All right. So, you, so if he wins, now he's got a platform of twenty. Yeah. Uh, so now you're looking at like essentially, uh, it's not a guarantee, but as close to one as you can get of like forty million dollars over the next two years. Exactly. They're not non-tendering him, so it is right. a guarantee. It's hard it to is imagine. a guarantee. Well, yeah. I, you know, I don't know. He could like suffer a catastrophic injury. Even or... then, are they going to non-tender him? <laughs> you I know, mean, if, if a career-ending injury, perhaps. Yeah degenerative yeah. condition um yeah. you know crazy things happen in life man but yeah no so you know you make like an excellent point that both sides are 
incentivized against the two-year agreement. Uh, so yeah, it does seem like they're going to go to a hearing this year and they might end up going to a hearing next year as well. Um, yeah. depending on, on how things play out. And I do agree with you that like at this stage in the game for both Bo and Vlad, I'm not anticipating an extension between now and them hitting free agency. Uh, I think that both those guys go to market. Um, if they're even, you know, still blue Jays at the time that they go to market, which, uh, honestly not a certainty. We'll see what the next, uh, 24 months look like. Sorry, blue Jays fans. Um, but you know, it, like if they are still blue Jays, when they go to market, they're familiar with your club. Um, they're familiar with your environment, with your people, you have gotten the benefit of like two more prime years of elite talents, you know, certainly in Bo's case and, uh, you know, arguably in Vlad's case, he can get back to that. Obviously he's coming off of a disappointing year. We'll see what 2024 holds, but like, you don't fluke your way to a like steamer projection of a 145 Wade runs created plus this year, Ben, that's his projection. Um, so like I, you get the benefit of those two years of, um, you know, elite production and then those players being so familiar with you and knowing you that well, when they go to market and they see what's out there, you can just offer them as much or more money than they are going to get elsewhere. And hopefully their relationship with you over time and their familiarity with you, your people, your environment leads them to want to return. So if like Bobachette, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. become free agents, doesn't necessarily mean that the Blue Jays' ten years are over. Yeah, agreed. Like there are lots of times where a guy will hit free agency and resign with his team, and that's that's possible here. Um, it's you know the best thing for everyone here is to win because if the Blue Jays win, that's a great recruiting tool for these guys and for others. And if Vlad and Bo are driving a team that's winning, that's great for them in their free agency. Um, probably means they're producing well. So. Everyone here is incentivized to win, and I agree. Like we'll see what the next two years bring. And for anyone who's sitting there thinking, "Well, look, if you're if you're not going to extend these guys, then you ha- you have to trade them," I-, I think that's like an impulse, and and that um, that's not uncommon amongst amongst fans. But for me, like the conversations that I have with people in the industry, you look at okay, Vlad Junior, he's going to be in his age twenty five and age twenty six seasons. Bo's going to be in his age twenty four and or sorry, 26 and 27 seasons. Like these guys are in their prime. This is this is why you want these guys is for these seasons. So these it's not you're losing them for nothing in the case that they do leave. You are getting these seasons and these chances to win when they're paid below market. They are in their prime defensively and offensively, and you have a chance to really build a, a good team around them, which you know they need to do, and they need to take advantage of that chance. But Vlad and Bo, I mean, this is a GM's dream to have Vlad Jr. Like Aaron Judge, when he was Vlad Jr.'s age, had barely played in the major leagues at all. Like Vlad Jr. to be at this point where he's 24 years old, five seasons into his major league career, that kind of tells you how special he can be. Isn't Adley older than him? Yeah, I think he is. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's the one Still, that always blows my yeah. mind. <laughs> like, Hadley is older than him, and what this is going to be Rutschman's third year uh, in MLB right now is as one of the uh, best young stars in the game. Look, like it, you make a good point. Like, as a Blue Jays fan, 
Like you shouldn't want the Blue Jays to trade Bo Bichette or Vladimir Guerrero Jr. just in order to like, quote unquote, get something in return or like, quote unquote, maximize the asset. Because if the Blue Jays are in a position where they are trading these players, that means that they are deeply uncompetitive and they are not winning and they are not going to the postseason. That means that things have gone so awry in this window when they are trying to contend this year and next that they are trading these players. That means that it has been a miserable time to be a Blue Jays fan. So you, you do not want that. No, that would not be good at all for Blue Jays fans. Let's look ahead to the rest of this offseason. We just got the Jock Peterson news coming across MLB trade rumors that uh, he is very close to an agreement with uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks. Um, so that that is interesting. Uh, another name off the board, Ben. Um, what, what did you think of kind of the, the Peterson fit with the Blue Jays, their interest in him, and, and what it kind of means now that it appears he's going off the board? Yeah, another one, Reese Hoskins, uh, just a few days ago, signing with the Brewers. So that market is starting to move. This is a few weeks ago now, but I was told that there was real mutual interest between uh, the Blue Jays and Jock Peterson. It certainly appeared that there was strong interest on the part of the Blue Jays and openness on the part of Jock Peterson um, to potentially uh, making that happen. And I thought it could make sense as a cleanup hitter against right-handed pitching. So the Diamondbacks always seem to be that other stalking horse there. Um, that was the the likely contender to, to sign him. But the Diamondbacks have also been linked to some of the DHs like a J.D. Martinez and a Jorge Soler, who now have one less landing spot to go to. So, you know, you look at what this means for the Jays. I still think this is a team that needs uh, another bat, needs a cleanup hitter, can certainly accommodate from a playing, uh, playing time standpoint. And from a, a dollar standpoint, can compete for these guys. So I still think that they're going to land someone, but it's been a long wait for Jays fans. Yeah, Hoskins gets the uh, the Conforto deal, basically two years. Love that deal, four million. Yeah, I, for great team deal and players. I, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, it's. I think it always made sense for the player to get a that kind of um, one plus one, and and the Brewers. I think that's a great deal. I mean, Hoskins entering is he's thirty years old. This is a. I think the Brewers did great here. Um, I, I love that deal from Milwaukee. And I think if the Jays could have got him at that term, which you know maybe they, they could have, if the Jays could have got him at that term, I'd be saying that was a great deal for the Jays. I, I think that's a really, really nice signing for Milwaukee. Yeah, it's uh, it's a you know there's certainly potential for a ton of value on that deal uh, yeah. for for the Brewers if Hoskins gets back to the guy who he was before injury. There's obviously no certainty there. This is a guy who blew out his knee in spring training um, and missed the entire 2023 season. You have to expect that there is going to be like a bit of a reacclimation process when he comes back. Like it's not like you know Conforto came back and was like himself you know, coming off of a different injury shoulder, obviously, but it's not like he was tearing the cover off the ball. So, um, you know, I think you want to be cautious there, but yeah, like Hoskins is a guy who, if he hadn't, you know, torn his ACL in spring training, he's a guy who probably gets a qualifying offer probably is like in the Bellinger Chapman tier looking at like a nine figure deal. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, if you're the Brewers, you, you feel good about that. I think, yeah, he was of that DH market Hoskins Solaire Martinez Peterson etc um Hoskins was the guy who I liked the most for the Jays um I think that JD Martinez is the guy who I like the second most for the Jays uh this is a guy who has been extremely 
productive uh you know over recent seasons like if you put aside you know 2020 which is a weird season with the pandemic and everything um he's had at least a 119 wrc plus every season since 2015 he's surpassed 135 on six occasions he's going off a year when i mean honestly like borderline qualifying offer candidate himself like ops nearly 900 hit 33 homers he was an all-star the stat cast page is just like bright red amazing contact quality lots of power i think that he is like as strong a bet as any of the remaining dhs um to hit 25 homers maybe you know even 30 in 2024 i mean only one blue jay hit 25 homers in 2023 so that is certainly a need for them jd martinez hammers the ball to left field jd And then you also layer in the intangible benefit of, you know, pretty well-earned reputation as a culture setter. He's like a de facto assistant hitting coach uh, because he's such a like swing mechanics junkie. I think that there's just a real added benefit to the players that he shares a clubhouse with. I think he'd fit really well in the Blue Jays lineup, hit and clean up being their dh maybe he plays like one or two games in the field you probably don't want him <laughs> the field all that much uh, but maybe. i think that yeah i i you know maybe in in emergency situations you know he keeps the glove in his locker just in case yeah but uh yeah i, I think that you know that with hoskins off the board um i think that martinez to me is the best fit for the blue jays in that that dh spot now i i agree i think he'd be a really good fit i think that'd be a really strong uh, signing if they if they land him um, and yeah, I mean, the, the glove, it's kind of the same with Jock. I mean, Jock's a clunker out there. Soler's a clunker out there. That's fine. You're not signing these guys for defense. They're really, really good hitters. And J.D. Martinez is a great hitter. I, I think he would he would instantly be a great cleanup hitter for really any team and certainly for this team. And so we'll see. I mean, I, I don't know um, which direction they're going to go here. I mean, I, I think that they're you look at the names and the Jays clearly remain engaged in that market. They are They are still... Um, involved in that market on DHs. Uh, so you look at Justin Turner, you look at Jorge Soler. You know, I wrote something about Jorge Soler uh, a few, a couple of weeks ago, and I think maybe gave people the impression that I really like him down on Jorge Soler. Um, He's but no like, Ahmed Rosario then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People think that I like love Ahmed Rosario <laughs> and hate Jorge Soler, which like, you know, I, you know, my takeaway from that is I really appreciate that people even pay attention and, and follow to that degree. And ben I, doesn't, I, let me tell you, he doesn't hate <laughs> anyone as much as Jamie Candelario. All right. Yeah, that that Jamer Candelario, he took the heat. <laughs> he took the heat, but then he signed early. Um, so then he probably saved himself some ATL mentions. But, you know, obviously Soler is a good hitter. If you get him on a one-year deal, yeah, that's great. He might hit 35 homers. You know, he's he's a good power hitter. To me, the the hesitation there is I don't think, and I'll I'll say this much on the on the record, so to speak. I don't think it's a good idea for the Jays to go out and sign him for a three-year deal. I just don't. You know, I, we saw the Kendrys Morales thing. If you're signing a, a DH type for three years, I just don't think it's a good idea. So if you can get him for one, maybe he hits 35 homers. Amazing. You're thrilled. He goes out and does it in the playoffs. Like, he might be the ALCS MVP. And if that's the case, like, I will be the first to admit that Jorge Soler was a great pickup for this team. But it's also, like... You know, you look at the baseball reference page, this guy's had some down years. Like, he is not a lock. So that's where I look at it. And if you have someone who's inconsistent offensively, strikes out a ton, doesn't play defense, that to me is just, it's not, that doesn't scream multi-year deal. 
Yeah, it's part of the reason why I like JD Martinez is that like you're probably only committing to him for a year. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I don't know if that's going to be like 12 million on the low end, 15 million on the high end. I don't know where you would think that would end up for JD. Yeah. I I think if you get him for 12, that's a home run. I think yeah. if you like I think it might be as high as 17 or 18. I just look at the way that this market is developed for veteran players and yep. like I I don't know I wonder if 18 is going to be there for him. Totally um, totally fair. Right? It seems like teams are really kind of using the pace of this market to their advantage and yep. uh you know just being extremely patient and extremely reticent to hand out um you know offers that are of the magnitude that some veteran players are expecting and you know we can all feel different ways about about that don't love it for players certainly understand the teams being advantageous hey look maybe somebody blows out their acl in spring training like reese hoskins did and all of a sudden like scott boris is getting some more calls about jd martinez right like i would not be surprised if a lot of these boris clients are still free agents uh come certainly early february maybe even mid-february like i think camps will open and Boris free agents will still be free agents. Uh, yeah. We've seen this happen before, and J.D. Martinez is, is one of those guys. So, yeah, it's part of the reason why he's attractive to me is because it should be just like a one-year commitment, whereas with Soler, yeah, I think you are going multiple years, and there is risk there with the like volatility in his track record because, yes, he has had like super offensive you know powerful campaigns but he's also had like league average ones in the years in between and so if he's more so that league average hitter it's not like saying oh he's still providing defensive value or oh he's still helping us on the base paths like there's just nothing to if he's a replacement level hitter earning like 15 million dollars and compromising your lineup flexibility is your dh every day that's no bueno. Like that's not yeah. helping you win. That's not what you need there. Um, and then there are also, I think, some you know some durability concerns. Like last year, I mean, there is some back stuff, some oblique stuff. He is a guy who swings the bat very, very hard with authority. That's how he generates like the excellent exit velocities and all the power that he does. So I think you want to be care- you know cautious there with a player, um, you know, on. You know, on the age curve where Solaire is. So, look, certainly a talented hitter. You love the walk rate. You hope that that could, like, maybe help sustain some production if, uh, you know, the power isn't there um, for one reason or another. But, yeah, I just think that there is, you know, a, a considerable amount of risk for Solaire on a two- or three-year deal, certainly more so than a Martinez or even a Justin Turner on a one-year deal. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's very fair to say. Like, if Solaire... In, and yeah, so it's interesting now with Arizona out of the mix. Presumably they're not they're done with DHs. Like the Jays clearly in that market. Um, you know, the Red Sox have been linked to some of these guys as well. So, you know, it's possible that Boston might jump in there and sign like Solaire for for multiple years. Um, you know, who knows? I, like, would you go two years to get Solaire? Because I, I don't think I would. If I can get Martinez for one year and like, I don't know, probably 15 million is, is probably as high as I would go for him. Yeah. No. Right. Yeah. If that like if that's if somebody's given J.D. Martinez like two twenty five. All right. See you later. Uh, I'm circling back to Jorge Soler. But then I'm also like checking in on Justin Turner and seeing if like, yeah. hey, would you do a year nine and a half 
Um, yeah. I'm checking in with Brandon Belt. Like, hey, would you do last year's deal again? Would you do one yeah. nine and a half again? Um, you know, I'm I'm looking to to those guys and seeing if there's a you know a short term option from from the left side for for Belt in particular available before I am dishing out multiple years for Solaire. You know what's interesting about both Solaire and JD Martinez, and actually Turner too, to a to a slightly lesser extent. Um, they have mashed in the playoffs. Like Solaire, like when I throw out, this is a guy who could win LCS MVP. Like he's he's been pretty elite. He was World Series MVP with Atlanta. Um, he's got a lifetime 1021 OPS in the postseason. JD Martinez, lifetime 974 OPS in the postseason. Justin Turner, who's played 86 postseason games. Like this guy's this guy has <laughs> just played so much in October. 830 OPS, which is really good. You're obviously facing the best pitchers in the world. Um, and, and Jock too was, was really good in October. So it's kind of funny, actually, these, some of these DH guys have been around a while, not only have they played in October, but they have excelled in the spotlight. Yeah. I think the, the thing that, um, probably gives you a good amount of caution with Justin Turner, uh, is that the man's turning 40 this year. So at some point, uh, his run of very strong seasons, above average offensive seasons, which like credit to him, he sustained through, uh, you know, the age of uh, what it would have been his age 38 season last year with Boston. And obviously all the fantastic years with L.A., like credit to him for being as productive as he's been and you know durable as he's been. Um, like you just don't see a lot of players in their age 39 seasons making a lot of plate appearances and putting up high OPSs. Like it's just not something that happens very often. Like Justin Turner is going to be as old. Like if he becomes a Blue Jay, he's going to be as old as like the hitting coaches, you know, like, <laughs> older, right? Like Matt Higgs yeah. probably like 38, you know, like yeah. I think G's like 39. <laughs> Hunter Men's 39. So I, I think Guillermo Martinez is like younger than that. Yeah. Yeah. either way like i just you know when when it falls off late in a player's yeah. career particularly late in their 30s like it can fall off really hard yeah so, and that's where you know with joey Votto too right it's the same kind yeah. of question yeah so you know I, I would be cautious there a reunion with brandon belt isn't the craziest thing in the world um you know that's at that point maybe i'm thinking about solaire on a two-year deal it just depends on like what the value is um yeah. you know Two years, twenty-four million. I'm I'm interested now, right? Like I think that's a that's a good deal for the Blue Jays for for Jorge Soler. Yeah. But if it's like you got to go to three years, forty. Uh, now yeah, I've, I've got some questions, right? That's a no. But yeah, um, yeah, and I and I think to me at a certain point in this thing, look, value is important. You want value, but at a certain point, you got to get the player you like, and you got to get a player you really believe in, and. I think that it can be worth spending just a little more to get something over the finish line. And so this is, I understand this is like an unscientific thing and the Blue Jays have a system for this. And there's something to be said for that as well. Of course, I'm not, I love data and analysis and, and there's a huge place for that. But I just think at a certain point, if you look at this market and you say J.D. Martinez is the guy you want, just get him. Maybe it's maybe it's 16 instead of 14. All right. I mean, like, you know, I, I understand there's an opportunity cost every time and you know the 700 million they didn't spend on Shohei doesn't just appear to spend on other players but I I think at a certain point and I would have done this with Hoskins I think I probably liked Hoskins more than more than the Jays did but you know I would have looked at Hoskins and said you know what Brewers are offering 34 just go to 35 and get it done or 36 like just just at a certain point get the guy you want I think it's pretty clear the Blue Jays didn't have that value on him and yes 
like I think what we know from the Blue Jays' behavior over you know several seasons now, you can agree with it or disagree with it, is that they really don't stray from their valuations. Yeah. So they have a value on Solaire. They have a value on Turner, on Martinez, on Belt. They have a value on any free agent that they would consider. Um, and they're not going to really exceed that because they're just that's just not the way that they do business, whether you like it or not. The other consideration is how much money do the Blue Jays have remaining to spend? Um, like, you know, we don't know what the Blue Jays budget is, but we understand it's going to be similar to what it was in 23. Um, their luxury tax payroll per roster resource was 246 million in 2023. So if we kind of assume it's around that like 246 to 248 range, um, the current estimate for the Blue Jays 2024 luxury tax payroll is 238. So that could be only like 10 million yeah. left to play with, 12 million left to play with um do you want to like save some money in the coffers for the trade deadline if you are and it's pretty likely i'd say just considering how this offseason has played out if you're looking for impact at the trade deadline and you're trying to take on a player with some salary at the trade deadline um you know do you want to spread the money you have remaining this offseason across two players do you want to concentrate it all in one and take the risk of that veteran DH guy like tweaking his oblique and missing six weeks? Uh, you know, these are all considerations as well when you're, you know, as you're saying, like when you were looking at the players you really like on the free agent market saying, ah, yeah, let's just push past our comfort zone and go beyond our valuation. It's another reason why you may not want to do that. Yeah. And I think if it's if it's like lefty relief, okay, then that's something where I'm totally fine. You you push that to the deadline, no problem. Even if it's even if it's you know setup arms, push that to the deadline. That's totally fine. But or, or rounding at a bench. But I think that when it comes to like a starting DH, hundred games are stand between us and the trade deadline. And I think for those hundred games, you want to have as much offense as possible, and that opportunity is there for them. So again, they're in that market. Lots of reason to believe that they'll continue to be engaged and probably sign someone. But um, yeah, it'll be. I, I do think that this is the chance now to upgrade your team for that first 100 games, and we'll see you know what they can do there. Did want to touch on you know the possibility of internal improvement, but feel like we've already gone pretty long in this podcast. Ben might want to like save that for a future episode. Sure. But is any kind of parting thoughts, any kind of last uh, note you want to make before we say goodbye? Um, you know what? Um, I think we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, we can come back to that internal question because there are tons of guys who I think could could you know, really improve. And the Jays obviously have lots of good reason to believe that they can get a lot of internal improvement from certain players. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, thanks to everyone who's um, who's made the time to, to listen to us here in the middle of January or the end of January. And yeah, look forward to having some more news to discuss at some point uh, in the future here. Yes, no doubt. Uh, only a matter of weeks now until pitchers and catchers are reporting to sunny Dunedin. I think we are less than, th or we are exactly as we sit here today, three weeks away from pitchers and catchers reporting in Dunedin. So it's uh, going to be very interesting to see just who is reporting to the Blue Jays uh, at spring training and just what this team looks like as they go ahead into 2024, try to do better than they did in uh in 2023 which obviously ended in bitterly disappointing fashion and that is a terrible way to end the podcast but that's where <laughs> we've arrived ben uh just reminding everybody of uh the abject failures 
of the past. Uh, he is Ben Nicholson Smith. I am Arden Zwelling. Our producers are Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. I want to thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you next time on At The Letters. <laughs> <laughs>